This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month we're going to hear So Late in the Day by Claire Keegan, which was published in The New Yorker in February of 2022. He'd sat behind her on that first morning, and while the introductory speaker jargoned on, he looked at the little buttons on the back of her blouse, wondering if she'd fasten them through the loops herself. The story was chosen by George Saunders, the author of the novel Lincoln and the Bardo, and five story collections, including 10th of December and Liberation Day, which came out last year. Hi, George. Hi, Deborah. Nice to be with Welcome you. Welcome back. So you were excited this time to choose a story by Claire Keegan for the podcast, and I'm wondering if you can say a bit about what excites you in her writing. Yeah, you know, I just heard her story Foster mentioned on, on the story club thing that I do on Substack, and I went to get it, and on the cover I saw that David Mitchell has said this was as good as Chekhov, and of course part of me goes, huh. And then I read <laughs> Foster, and I'm like, oh yeah, actually, wow, what a story, you know, beautiful story. So I um, went to get uh, small things like these and was equally blown away by that. So when you were in touch, I thought, well, let me see if there's anything else, and you sent me this lovely story. Yeah, it was, it was a great experience to read it kind of with the question in mind, is this the one I want to do? Am I in or out? And with this one, I was in from the beginning and it, it went by in like two minutes to reading, you know, so yeah, it's a beauty. <laughs> I, I think with this story, what you're actually in changes as you read. So <laughs> hmm. you stayed with it. Oh, I was so compelled. And that was something I hope we'll talk about is what is it that you know, on a real basic level, why do we keep reading these things that we know are made up? And with this one, I was, re- <laughs> you know, I was reading it with this kind of little bit, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to decide whether to do this on the podcast. And, you know, within a few paragraphs, I just forgot that question. I was just so drawn in. And as you say, the story really um, surprises you with the way it changes and implicates you. And it, it's quite a, a, quite a masterpiece, I think. Yeah. Obviously, this story is quite different from Foster and and from the other work of Claire Keegan's that you read. What do all her pieces have in common? Well, as a writer, what I feel is there's just evidence of so much care. I don't know, of course, her her process, but it feels to me like she's somebody who really spends a lot of time rewriting and reconsidering because these stories all reward a second, third, fourth reading. And when, when you come through the story, having read it once you see that there really isn't an errant brushstroke. Everything is there for a, a beautifully calibrated purpose. So to me, that's really intriguing because, you know, when a work of art has depth like that, I always wonder, how did it get there? I'd, I'd love to talk to her about her process and how she gets so, so much evidence of care in every single line. You know, we did a, a Q&A about this story, and the origin of this story was that she was teaching and discussing with her students the difference in fiction between tension and drama. Hmm. And a student asked her if she could think of a tense story that had little or no drama. And so she sketched out her idea for this story. In class? In class. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That really makes me feel stupid. (laughs) And then... And then she kept using that example in class, and then finally she thought, well, maybe I should write the story. Ah. Um, 
unusually for this podcast, we are not going to hear you reading the story, but we'll be listening to the recording that Claire Keegan made of it when it was published in the magazine last year. So now here's Claire Keegan reading her story so late in the day. So late in the day. On Friday, July 29th, Dublin got the weather that had been forecast. All morning, a brazen sun shone down on Merrion Square, reaching on to Carl's desk, where he was stationed by the open window. A taste of cut grass blew in, and every now and then a warm breeze played with the ivy on the ledge. When a shadow crossed, he looked out, a gulp of swallows, skirmishing high up in camaraderie. Down on the lawn, some people were out sunbathing, and there were children and beds plump with flowers, so much of life carrying smoothly on, despite the tangle of human conflicts and the knowledge of how everything must end. Already the day felt long. When he looked back at his screen, it was 14.27. He wished now that he had gone out at lunchtime and walked as far as the canal. He could have sat on one of the benches there for a while, and watched the swans and the cygnets gobbling up the crusts and other bits and pieces people threw down for them on the water. Not meaning to, he closed the budget distribution file he'd been working on without saving it. A flash of something not unlike contempt charged through him then, and he got up and walked down the corridor to the men's room, where there was no one, and pushed into a stall. For a while he sat looking at the back of the door, on which nothing was written or scrawled. When he felt a bit steadier, he went to the basin and splashed water on his face, and slowly dried his face and hands on the paper towel that fed automatically from the dispenser. On the way back to his desk he stopped for a coffee, pressed the Americano option on the machine, and waited for it to spill down into the cup. It was almost ready when Cynthia, the brightly dressed woman from accounts, came in, laughing on her mobile. She paused when she saw him, and soon hung up. All right there, Cahill. Yeah, he said. Grant, you? Grant, she smiled. Thanks for asking. He took up the coffee, leaving before he'd sugared it, before she could say anything more. When he got back to his desk and looked at the top of the screen, it was 14.54. He reopened the file, reading over what was there, and was about to compose some of the changes he would have to make again when the boss stopped by. The boss was a northern man, almost ten years younger than him, who wore designer suits and played squash at the weekends. Well, Carl, how are things? Fine, he said. Thanks. Did you get a bite of lunch? Something to eat? Yeah, Carl said. No bother. The boss was looking him over, taking in his usual jacket, tie and trousers, the unpolished shoes. You know there's no need to stay on, the boss said. Why don't you call it a day? He flushed a little then, seeming uneasy about the well-intentioned phrase. I'm just finishing the outline now, 
Carl said. I'd like to get this much done. Fair enough, the boss said. Whatever, take your time. The boss withdrew to his office then and Carl heard the door softly closing. When he looked back out, the window, the sky was blank and blue. He took a sip of the bitter coffee and stared again at the file he hadn't saved. It wasn't easy to see it now in the glare of the sunlight, so he changed the font to bold and tilted the screen. For a while he tried to focus again on what was there, but in the end decided to switch to the raft of letters, which would all be identical except for the name. Dear blank, thank you for your application for a bursary in visual arts. The selection committee has now convened and made its decisions. The final round was extremely competitive and we regret to inform you that on this occasion... By 5pm he had most of the rejection letters printed on letterhead and was waiting by the elevator. When he heard someone coming he pushed through the door to the stairwell. It was hotter and smelled musty there. The Polish girl who cleaned after hours was leaning against the banister, texting. He felt her watching him as he passed and was glad to reach the foot of the stairs in the exit to get out into the street, where it was noisy and a hot queue of cars pushed at the traffic lights. He took his tie and jacket off and felt for the bus pass which was there in his breast pocket and walked to the Davenport to wait for the Arklo bus. For no particular reason, a part of him doubted whether the bus would come that day, but it soon came up Westland Row and pulled in as usual. Almost every seat was occupied, and he had to take an aisle seat beside an overweight woman who slid a bit closer to the window to give him room. Wasn't that some day, she said brightly. Yeah, Carl said. They say it's meant to last, she said, this fine weather. He had chosen badly. This woman would want to talk. He wished she would stay quiet, then caught himself. That's good to know, he said. We're taking the kids to British Bay for a dip on Sunday, she went on. If we don't soon go, the summer could get away from us. She took a tube of polar mints from her pocket and offered him one, which he refused. How about you, she said. Any plans for the long weekend? I'm just going to take it easy, Carl said, threading the speech into a corner where it might go no further. He would ordinarily have taken out his mobile then to check his messages, but found that he wasn't ready, then wondered if anyone ever was ready for what was difficult. And we're taking them to my brother's dairy farm, the woman went on. We don't want them growing up thinking milk comes out of a carton. Aren't children so privileged nowadays? They are, surely. Have you children yourself? Carl shook his head. No. Ah, you could be as well off, she said. Don't they break your heart? He thought she would go on, but she reached into her bag and took out a book. The woman who walked into doors and was soon engrossed and turning the pages. The traffic was heavy at that hour heading out of town and along the top of the N11, but once they'd passed the turn-off for Bray and got on the motorway, the road opened up. He looked out at the trees and the fields sliding past 
and the wooded hills beyond, which he noticed almost daily but had never climbed. Sooner than he'd expected they were bypassing the turnoff for Wicklow Town and heading farther south at about the usual time. It had been an uneventful day, much the same as any other. Then at the stop for Jack White's Inn, a young woman came down the aisle and took the vacated seat across from him wearing a familiar perfume. He sat breathing in her scent until it occurred to him that there must be thousands of women, if not hundreds of thousands, who smelled the same. Little more than a year ago, he had almost run down the stairwell from the office to meet Sabine at the entrance to Merrion Square, where the statue of Wilde lay against a rock. She was wearing a white trouser suit and sandals, sunglasses, a string of multicoloured beads around her neck. They crossed over to the National Gallery to see the Vermeer. She'd booked tickets online. He stood close, breathing in her Chanel as they viewed the paintings. Although she admired Vermeer's women, most to him looked idle, sitting around as though waiting for somebody or something that might never come, or staring at themselves in a looking-glass. Even the hefty milkmaid seemed to be pouring the milk out at her leisure, as though she had nothing else or better to do. They took the bus down to his place in Arklow afterward, and lay in bed with the window wide open, warm air and the steely sounds of his neighbour's wind chimes coming in. She slept for an hour or more before walking to Tesco for groceries and making dinner, chicken roasted with branches of thyme, and shallots, fennel, the woman could cook. Even now he had to say that much for her. But part of him always resented the number of dirty dishes, having to rinse them all before stacking them in the dishwasher, except for the roasting dish, which she usually said they could leave to soak overnight, and which was sometimes still there in the sink when he got back from work on Mondays. They had met more than two years earlier, at a conference in Toulouse. She was petite and dark-haired, with a good figure and oak-brown eyes that were not quite properly aligned, a little bit crossed. He'd been drawn to how she was dressed, in a skirt and blouse of slate blue, and how at ease in herself she seemed, and alert to what was around her. He'd sat behind her on that first morning, and while the introductory speaker jargoned on, he looked at the little buttons on the back of her blouse, wondering if she'd fastened them through the loops herself. There was no ring on her finger. He approached her at the coffee break, and it turned out that she too worked in Dublin city centre for the Hugh Lane Gallery, and was renting a flat in Rathgar, which she shared with three younger women. Have you spent any time in Wicklow? I have visited Clendalock and Avondale, she said, and walked the hills. It is such pretty countryside. You might come down and visit again sometime, Carl said, and got her number. Things were lukewarm on her side at the beginning, but he didn't push. Then she started coming down on weekends and staying over. She had grown up in Normandy by the coast and liked getting out of the city, liked the town of Arklow with the river running through it and the nearby beach where she often walked the strand barefoot even in winter. 
Her father was French, had married an English woman, but her parents divorced when she was a teenager and hadn't spoken since. At some point, Sabine began spending most of her weekends in Arklow, and they started going to the farmer's market together on Saturday mornings. She didn't seem to mind the expense and bought freely loaves of sourdough bread, organic fruits and vegetables, place and sole and mussels off the fish van, which came up from Kilmore Quay. Once he'd seen her pay three euros for an ordinary-looking head of cabbage. In August she went out along the back roads with the colander, picking blackberries off the hedges. Then in September a local farmer told her that she could gather the wild mushrooms from his fields. She made blackberry jam, mushroom soup, almost everything she brought home she cooked, with apparent light-handedness and ease, with what Carl took to be love. One evening they walked to Little and bought half a kilo of cherries. They halved and stoned them at the kitchen island with glasses of the Beaujolais she'd brought, and she made a tart, which she said was a version of a French dessert, a clafoutis. The pastry had to be left to chill while she made a custard. Then she rolled the pastry out with a cold wine bottle and fluted the edges deftly with her thumbs. Finally, when the tart was in the oven, he looked at their empty glasses and replenished them and asked if they should marry. Why don't we marry? Why don't we? (laughs) She let out a sound, a type of choked laughter. What sort of way is this of asking? It seems like you were almost making some type of argument against it. I didn't mean it that way, Cahill said. So what is it then that you did mean? Her command of the English language sometimes grated. It's just something to consider is all. Won't you think about it? Think about what exactly? About making a life, a home, here with me. There's no reason you shouldn't live here instead of paying rent. You like it here, and you know neither one of us is getting any younger. She was looking at him with her brown eyes. And there's no reason why we couldn't have a child, he said, if you wanted. He watched her closely then. She didn't seem to turn from the idea. And we could get a cat, he said. You'd like a cat, I know. She let out a genuine laugh then, and Cal felt some of her resistance subsiding and gathered her into his arms but it took more than three weeks and some persuasion on his part before she finally relented and said yes. And then another month passed before she found an engagement ring to suit her at a fancy jeweller's off Grafton Street, an antique with two diamonds set on a red gold band, but it was loose on her finger and had to be resized. When they went back to collect it some weeks later, on a Friday evening, An additional charge of 120 euros plus VAT was added for the resizing. He took her outside to the street then, saying that they should refuse to pay this extra charge, but she insisted she'd told him about the additional cost. Do you think I'm made of money? He said, and immediately felt the long shadow of his father's words crossing over his life. On what should have been a good day, if not one of his happiest. 
She stared at him and was about to turn and walk, but Carl backed down and clutched her arm and apologised. Please wait, he pleaded. I didn't mean it. I just didn't want to be taken advantage of is all. I got it all wrong. He went back into the shop then and with some difficulty, as his hands weren't steady, prized the MasterCard from his wallet. The jeweller, a red-haired man with gold-rimmed glasses, placed the ring into a little domed box and handed him the card reader. You know that this item is non-refundable now, that it is custom-made. There'd be no need for anything like that, Carl said. The jeweller pressed his lips together as though resisting the urge to say something more, but when the transaction was approved he simply handed Carl the receipt and the little box which weighed no more than a box of matches. Afterward, they went to Neary's, where it was quiet, and ordered tea and grilled cheese sandwiches, which the barman brought to their little marble-topped table. She reached for the sugar, the ring catching the light, shining freshly on her hand where he had placed it. But she had little appetite, took just a few bites out of the sandwich and let her second cup of tea grow cold. A drizzle of rain started coming down as they walked past St. Stephen's Green to the bus stop. For almost half an hour they waited there outside the Davenport before the bus finally came. But the rest of the weekend went remarkably well. As the hours passed, she seemed to slowly forgive him, to soften. And the time between them grew sweet again, perhaps even a little sweeter than it had ever been the hurdle of their first argument having been crossed. When the bus stopped at Arklow, Cal got off along with some others. A big man in work clothes and Wellingtons was sitting on the wall outside the newsagents, licking an ice cream cone, a 99. The man nodded, but did not speak, and Cal wondered if this wasn't the same man who told Sabine that she could gather the mushrooms off his fields. He wasn't sure he would make it back to the house without meeting others and was relieved to reach his front door, where a bunch of wilted flowers lay on the step. He stepped over them, turned the key in the lock and pushed the door. A small pile of post had gathered there on the mat. He stooped to lift the envelopes and place them on the hall stand alongside the rest. As soon as he had the door closed, he felt the house unusually still and quiet. He stood for a minute and called out to Mathilde the cat. When he called again and still there was no sound, his heart lurched and he went looking, opening doors, but the cat was nowhere to be found until he found her in the bathroom. He must have locked her in there by mistake that morning, before he left for work. He opened the back door and let her out, then looked into the fridge. There was nothing fresh there. A jar of three fruits marmalade, Dijon mustard, ketchup, a packet of short-dated rashers, champagne, a phallus-shaped cake with flesh-coloured icing, which his brother had ordered as a joke for the stag party. He took a Weight Watcher's chicken and veg out of the freezer and stabbed the plastic a few times with a steak knife before putting it into the microwave on high for nine minutes. Then he emptied the last pouch of whiskers into the cat's dish and filled her water bowl. 
as the water bowl was filling, a thirst came over him, and he dipped his head and drank from the running tap. A feeling not unlike happiness momentarily passed through him. It was something he used to do in college, drinking from the water fountain at UCD. After cycling in from the flat, he shared with his brother and two other fellows. But he was so much younger then. In the sitting room, he took his shoes off and picked up the remote, sifted through the channels. There was little of interest on a rerun of the Wimbledon final. A Dr. Phil, Judge Judy, a cookery programme with a man in chef's whites, cutting an avocado in half, removing the stone, the skin, and mashing it up with a fork. He opened the window and looked out at the street, at the brightness of the houses across the way. This evening a bunch of helium balloons was tied to a gate, and there were children bouncing on an inflated castle, screams. He drew the curtains together, closing out the light, and instantly felt a little better. He told himself that he should take a shower and change out of his work clothes, but he did not feel like going upstairs or changing. He slipped his belt off and pushed all the cushions to one side of the couch and punched them together. There was no need for all those cushions, six of them on one couch. When the microwave dinged, he sifted through the channels again. Still, there was nothing there he wanted to see, so he went back to the kitchen and took the carton out of the microwave, peeled off the cellophane. He sat at the island for a while with a fork, chewing and swallowing Weight Watchers. That had been her big thing since the 1st of April, so she wouldn't fit so snugly into the little vintage dress she'd found, a white lacy dress with pearls stitched onto the bodice. She hadn't minded showing it to him, was not superstitious. She'd stopped making dinner most evenings except for the big green salad with vinaigrette, dressing that she usually made. He told her that it didn't matter, that she wasn't fat, but she wouldn't listen. That was part of the trouble. The fact that she would not listen and wanted to do a good half of things her own way. And then, this time last month, the moving van arrived. With all her things, boxes of books and DVDs, CDs, a table and chairs, two suitcases filled with clothes, a large Matisse print of a cat with its paw in a fish tank, and framed photographs of people he did not know which she placed and hung about the house, pushing things aside, as though the house now belonged to her too. A good half of her books were in French, and she looked different without her makeup, going around in a tracksuit, sweating and lifting things, and making him lift and move his own things, rearranging furniture, the strain showing so clearly on her face, and there were pots and pans, a walk, a yoga mat, skirts and blouses, wooden hangers, a water filter, canisters of tea, coffee grinder, lamps. Tell me you still love me, she said, once most of her things were in place, and several of his had been repositioned. They had sat down at that point, on the edge of the bed. Of course. So what is wrong? There's nothing. Tell me, she insisted. 
I just don't know about this stuff, that's all. Which stuff? My stuff? These things, all your things, all all this. He was looking around at the blue throw, the two extra pillows, pairs of shoes and sandals, most of which he'd never seen her wearing, poking out from under his chest of drawers. He himself owned just one pair of shoes. Did you think I would come with nothing? It's just a lot. He tried to explain. A lot. I do not have so very much. Just a lot to deal with. What did you imagine? I don't know, he said. Not this. Just not this. Cannot understand, she told him. You knew I had to vacate the apartment in Rathgar by the end of the month. You asked me to come and live here with you, to marry you. I just didn't think it would be like this is all, he said. I just thought about you being here and having dinner together, waking up with you. Maybe it's just too much reality. He made an attempt to pull her to him then, so as not to see what was in her eyes, to block it out. But she was rigid in his arms and got up, determined to empty out the last box, moving his razor and toothpaste to one side on the little glass shelf in the ensuite to make room for her own. And there were lotions, contraceptives, hair, conditioner, and a makeup bag, tampons. She took a long shower then and changed and drank a full litre of Evian over a Chinese that he'd had to order on the phone. The restaurant charged four euros for delivery. He'd wanted to walk down to collect it. It wasn't far. But she didn't feel like walking that night, and he didn't think it right to leave her there on her own. After they'd eaten, a change seemed to come over her, and she opened up a bit and started to talk. I went out for a drink with your co-worker, Cynthia, last week. Oh. Yes, she said. She took me to the Shelburne. I didn't know you knew each other. We don't, really, she said. She just handles the funding for some of our work at the gallery. In any case, we wound up drinking a bottle of Chablis and started talking about men, Irish men, and I asked her what it is you really want from us. What is her experience? Cahal felt a sudden need to get up, but he made himself stay in the chair facing her. Would you like to know what she said? (laughs) I'm not sure. He almost laughed. Then perhaps you can answer. I don't know, he said truthfully. I've never once thought about it. But I'm asking you to think about it now. Carl lifted his hand and reached for her plate, rose and placed it on the draining board with his own before leaning back and holding on to the edge of the counter. I really don't know, he said. What did she say? She said things may now be changing, but that at least half of men your age just want us to shut up and give you what you want. That you're spoiled and become contemptible when things don't go your way. Is that so? He wanted to deny it, but it felt uncomfortably close to a truth he had not once considered. 
it occurred to him that he would not have minded her shutting up right then and giving him what he wanted. He felt the possibility of making a joke, of diffusing what had come between them, but then the moment passed and she turned her head away. That was the problem with women falling out of love. The veil of romance fell away from their eyes, and they looked in and could read you. But this one didn't stop there. She also said that, to some of you, we are just cunts, she went on, that she's often heard Irish men referring to women in this way. We had reached the end of the bottle and had not yet eaten, but I remember clearly that's what she said. Ah, that's just the way we talk over here, Cahill said. It's just a cultural thing. It means nothing half the time. Monica, the cleaner, told her that you were the only person in the whole building who didn't give her so much as a card at Christmas. Is this true? I don't know. He genuinely didn't. He couldn't remember giving her something or not, giving her anything. Do you know you've never once thanked me for a dinner I made here, or bought groceries or even made one breakfast for me? Did I not order our dinner here tonight? And haven't I helped you all day moving your things? The night you asked me to marry you, you bought cherries at Little and told me they cost you six euros. So? You know what is at the heart of misogyny? When it all comes down to it. So I'm a misogynist now. It's simply about not giving, she said whether it's not giving us the vote or not giving help with the dishes. It's all clitched to the same wagon. Hitched, Carl said. What? It's not clitched, he said. It's hitched. You see, she said, isn't this just more of the same? You knew exactly what I meant, but you cannot even give me this much. He looked at her then and saw something ugly about himself, looking back at him, not angrily, but calmly in her gaze. Can you not even understand what I am talking about? She seemed to be genuinely asking and looking for an answer. But Carl didn't say much more. At least he didn't think he had said much more. He might later on have made some ugly remark about her eyes. He did not like to think of this. But the fact was that he couldn't remember much else about that evening, except that he was glad he hadn't had to help with any dishes afterward. He'd simply put his foot down on the pedal of the bin and thrown the cartons from the Chinese in on top of the other waste that was there before letting the lid drop. It was past 8pm when Cottle went back into the sitting room. He'd decided to watch a series on Netflix to binge watch another over the weekend, but a documentary had come on on the BBC about Lady Diana, some type of commemoration or an anniversary. He'd never taken any interest in the royal family, 
He had found himself watching in a kind of trance. There she was, in the white dress, with a veil over her face, getting out of the carriage with her father and turning to wave before climbing the steps and taking the long walk up the aisle to marry the man waiting for her there at the altar. As soon as the vows were made and the wedding rings had been exchanged, Carl automatically pressed the rewind button on the remote before realising it was something he could not rewind. And then Matilde came in. He felt her coming back, and soon afterward during the ads the screen grew a bit fuzzy and his eyes stung. He felt hot and took his socks off and dropped them on the floor and left them there. There was such pleasure in doing this that he wanted to do it again. Instead, he watched the second half of the program, Diana getting pregnant and producing a son, and then another. Toward the end, after she had left her husband and gone off with another man, a wealthy Egyptian, she was sitting out in a bathing suit on a diving board. And then there was the car crash in the tunnel in Paris and all those flowers rotting outside Kensington Palace and Buckingham. When the credits started to roll, he felt the need for something sweet and went into the kitchen. He opened the fridge and reached in for the flesh-coloured cake, lifted it out onto the island. He took the steak knife and sliced the whole tip off. Then he took out the champagne and removed the foil and untwisted its wire cage. The bottle had been in there since the night of the hen party, as Sabine had no taste for fizzy drinks. The cork was stubborn and tight, but he kept pushing at it with his thumbs until it gave and came away with an exhausted little pop. Back in the sitting room, he flicked through the channels. Again, there was nothing he really wanted to see. He ate mouthfuls of the cake and drank the champagne neither slowly nor in any rush until the cake and the champagne were gone and then a painful wave of something he hadn't experienced before came at him without blotting out the day which was almost over. He would have liked to sleep then but sleep too seemed beyond his reach. At last he took out his mobile and switched it on. There were several emails, most of them junk, and just a few text messages, nothing from her. From his brother, his best man, there was one missed call and a text of just two words. You okay? Carl made an effort to reply, then read over and deleted what he had written and turned the mobile off. After a while he put his head down on the cushions and let his mind fall into a series of difficult thoughts which he laboured over. At one point something from years ago came back to him, his mother standing at the gas cooker making buttermilk pancakes, turning them on the griddle. His father was at the head of the table, he and his brother seated on either side. Both were in their twenties at that time, in college. His mother had served everyone, brought their plates to the table, and they had begun to eat. When she went to sit down with her own plate, his brother had reached out and had quickly pulled the chair out from under her, 
and she had fallen backward onto the floor. She must have been near sixty years of age at that time, as she had married late. But his father had laughed. All three of them had laughed heartily, and had kept on laughing while she picked the pancakes and the pieces of the broken plate up off the floor. If part of him now asked how he might have turned out if his father had been another type of man and had not laughed, Carl did not let his mind dwell on it. He told himself that it meant little, that it had just been a bad joke. When he no longer felt able or inclined to think over or consider anything else, he turned on his side, but at least another hour must have passed before sleep finally reached out, and he felt himself falling into its relief and a new darkness. When he woke, it was past midnight. The TV was still going. Some poker tournament with men in baseball caps and dark glasses guarding their cards. For a while he watched these near-silent men placing and hedging their bets and bluffing, most lost and kept losing, or folded before they lost more. Eventually he turned the TV off and sat listening to the quiet of the house and realised that Mathilde was there on the armchair, purring. He reached for her, lifted her into his arms. She weighed far more than he'd expected her to weigh and he put her at the back, watched her going off through the hedge, and locked the door. By now they would have had their first dance, and might still have been dancing into the early hours at the Arklo Bay Hotel. He had paid for trays of snacks to be served with tea at 11pm, several types of sandwiches, cocktail sausages and milli volivants, that would, by now, have been served and eaten by those with whom they might in one way or another have spent their lives. It was money he would never again see. His mind hovered half stupidly over these unwelcome facts while he stared at the empty champagne bottle on the floor, realising he probably wasn't sober. He thought of those cherries and what his going over there cost, those six euros had cost him. Then he thought of the tart, the clafoutis, and how it had turned out to be burnt at the edges and half raw in the centre, and a strange, almost comical noise came from somewhere inside him. Didn't they say that a woman in love burned the dinner, and that when she no longer cared, she served it up half raw? When he pulled the curtains, the window was wide open. The inflated castle was still out there, he could see it, clearly, under the streetlight, but there were no children now. Cunt, he said. Although he couldn't accurately attach this word to what she was, it was something he could say, something he could call her. He stood in the quiet for a minute or two, then heard a noise and realised that a wasp had come in and was flying about, zigzagging and bumping against his things. He took one of his shoes up off the floor and turned the overhead light on and found himself going after the wasp, following its haphazard motions. A current of excited anger was rising up through his blood, and at one point when he was standing on the sofa to reach unsuccessfully to kill it, he thought of Monica, 
that foreign cleaner on the stairs, and how she'd watched him as he passed on what should have been his wedding day, and of Cynthia, and how she had smiled that morning, and how she had taken Sabine off, unbeknownst to him, to the Shelburne. Fucking cunts. It sounded better in the plural, stronger. He kept after the wasp, making bigger, bolder swipes until it flew back to the window to get away from him, and he had it cornered between the pane and the sill and killed it. After he'd thrown the dead wasp out and closed the window, he felt a bit cooler and used the downstairs toilet to take a long piss. There was some satisfaction in doing this without having to lift the lid, without having to put the lid back down, or having to wash his hands or make a pretense of having washed his hands afterward. But the pleasure quickly vanished, and he then had to make himself climb the stairs. As he climbed, he felt himself holding on to the banister, realising he was pulling himself, woodenly, up the steps, He knew he could not blame the champagne, but nonetheless found himself blaming it. Then a line from something he'd read somewhere came to him, to do with endings, about how if things have not ended badly, they have not ended. When he went into the bedroom and unbuttoned his shirt and took his trousers off and lay down, he did not want to close his eyes. When he closed his eyes, he could see more clearly the white cuff of his wedding shirt poking out from the built-in wardrobe and the stack of unopened congratulatory cards and letters on the hall stand and the diamond ring, which he couldn't return, shining inside its box on the bedside table and heard her saying yet again and so late in the day and very clearly that she did not want to marry him after all. That was Claire Keegan reading her story so late in the day. The story was published in The New Yorker in February of 2022 and will be included in Keegan's collection So Late in the Day, Stories of Women and Men, which comes out in November. Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount. So, George, let's just first address the elephant in the room, which is why you chose not to read the story yourself. Yeah, you know, so I had the... um experience I described earlier of reading the story to decide if I wanted to do it. And I came out of that last line just on fire with love for the story and, oh, I'll do it. And I emailed you right away. And then about an hour later, I was like, oh, wait a minute. This word is in the story that I don't like, the C word, you know. 
I don't know. I just had um, a real sense of not wanting to read that, not wanting to say it aloud. And it's probably, you know, hypocritical or something. But I, I don't know. Reading it on a recording, I, as a dude, I just didn't want to do it. So you were nice enough to, and Claire was nice enough to accommodate. And uh, I think, by the way, it's a perfect word for the story. And I even, you know, kind of thought, well, I wonder if we could substitute in another pejorative, you know. And all the ones I could think of were not as perfectly pitched. So 100% for it in the story. I just somehow didn't didn't want to say it. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to be really impressed by and, and involved in a story that includes words we can't say out loud. So going back to the beginning of the story, when, when we first start reading the story, we have no idea what is particular about this day. We just know that this main character, Kahal, is uncomfortable and the people around him are, seem sort of uncomfortable around him and it may have something to do with what day it is, but we don't really know that. And, you know, of course, that's the tension that Claire Keegan builds, but how, how hard is it, do you think, to build that kind of tension that keeps going for at least half the story before we get any kind of inkling? Right. Of why this day is so bad. If I was teaching this story, I think that's what I would do is I would ask my students to underline the phrases where their understanding broadened. You know, where, where were the places where you thought, oh, this has to do with the woman? Oh, it mm-hmm. seems like the woman is no longer in his life. Uh, and I think if you do that, you, you see that the whole thing is it's a perfectly seated pattern that explodes in the very last line. You know, the last line mm-hmm. is the first time that we really get confirmation of the whole thing. So that's really an incredibly artful thing to do. Um, but there's another part that intrigues me is you could imagine the, the proverbial lesser writer uh, starting the story by saying Friday should have been his wedding day. And in some ways, like I remember Raymond Carver used to say, you know, no tricks. And one of the examples he gave is the story where the author is withholding something. And in fact, where the narrator, or the, the character is withholding something. So in my my sort of second thing was how how did she get away with this because she the character knows from the beginning what day it is but he never tells mm-hmm. us why does that feel so natural and and not like withholding and i think the key and the real genius of the story is that that's who he is you know he's just made of denial he really can't say that aloud to himself that she didn't want to marry him until we've gone through the whole process of the story so it's beautiful because the the narrative conceit of withholding as a beautiful character stroke. And that's, I think that's really hard to, hard to achieve. And we get to know him better because he, he's incapable of turning to us and telling us the truth. And in, in several places, he's incapable of telling it to himself. Uh, yeah. And so the fact that we buy that all the way through is just really an accomplishment. Yeah, there are several moments in the story where his memory goes fuzzy or, you know, something... We just don't hear about the worst part of a conversation. That's right. And there's even um, a couple of places where he, he says his mind turned to certain difficult ideas. He, he seems incapable of telling us what they are, you know, which is such an interesting representation of that kind of, I think of it as alcoholic. There's something looming that's bothering you, but to turn and look at it directly is just beyond your, your capability, you know. And yet his mind, you know, it's funny, his mind keeps serving those things up. That terrible story about his mother is something that he, it just comes to him at a, at a certain right moment. Yeah. 
I feel as though, you know, throughout the story, we're, we're getting his, his struggle with his own, you know, misogyny or feelings about women. And sometimes what he expresses is awful, and sometimes what he expresses is regret. And actually, by the time the incidents with his mother comes up, he sees quite clearly what was wrong with it. So I wonder, do you think he's sort of making progress in the course of the mm-hmm. story? Yeah. I, for me, the reason this is so beautifully shaped is I think this is the moment when he should have or could have made some progress. And I think mm-hmm. it's right after that story about his mother, you know, because he sort of blurts it out mentally. Then he says, if his father had been a different person, and then you can see him right on the page truncating that thought. He, he doesn't want to go there. And then he does that frantic denier retreat. And mm-hmm. I think he lands, oh, it's just a joke. And then not long after that is when he says the C word for the first time. So I read that as kind of like subjugated, redirected energy. He, he got to what could have been the turning point of his life. And he once again can't do it. And so what does he do with all that pent up energy? He has to blame first Sabine and then, you know, all women. So it's a beautiful, um, you know, I had this idea that a story is kind of like a bucket brigade where the writer makes energy in section one. A well-written story passes the energy to scene two without losing any. And then there's a little added to it. And so the energy is continually ascending, but sometimes energy gets transferred. So in this case, mm-hmm. he's ripe for a realization. There's all that energy of the story with his mom. But because he is the guy that, that the author has told us he is, he can't go there. And the energy has to go somewhere. You know, so it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, we, we get a constant movement with him in that he comes so close to admitting what's wrong, you know, as he does with the story about his mother. When Sabine is telling him he's a misogynist and so on, he wants to deflect it, but he sort of thinks she might be right. <laughs> you know, he he feels she's getting close to the truth, and then he has to kind of back away from it. Um, he keeps doing that. Yeah. And there's even that moment, you know, on the bus near, near the beginning of the story, which is after the past events of the story have taken place, where he's impatient with this overweight woman he sat down next to, and he's, thank God, he wished she would shut up, basically. Yeah. And yeah. then he catches himself, and he says something back. And that, that's such a beautiful scene. You know, I always do this thing where, uh, and I know we've done this together, where in a story, why does this scene belong? You know, and if the answer is, eh, it's pretty good, that's not enough. So on that scene, I noticed, and it's so skillful, he characterizes her as overweight. You know, it almost seems factual, but once we get to know him a little bit, he even thinks of the cat that way. So, so that's just the first light brushstroke. And then the other thing I noticed in there is that he, um, he does have that moment you described where he corrects himself, so we think better of him. Then she mentions that line about summer, you know, the, the summer is fading fast, which we, on a second read, has applicability to him. Mm-hmm. Also, she's reading a Roddy Doyle book, which I looked it up, is about um, a woman who's trapped in a relationship with an abusive husband. Yeah. And then the last beautiful thing is in that little interchange where he's like, I got to get away from this woman. She actually shuts him down, which, you know, kind of echoes beautifully with the end. So, so nothing seems to be chance, but it also doesn't have that feeling that you sometimes see of overdetermination. It feels completely natural, and yet when you read it a second or third time, the whole story lights up with the kind of central vector. Yeah, I think it's even in the language, you know, the very beginning of the story when we don't know what's going on. We just know that there's this disgruntled person 
and he's got the brazen sun shining on his desk. Mm. You know, just the the words that are used and the the birds in the sky are skirmishing and there's shadows passing over him. And there's something like just in the language that's very suggestive of his situation and his state of mind. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, something you see in Chekhov as well, where the, the on the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You know, every line is used to put you somewhere. I, I thought also the way that the POV here is so interesting because it kind of sneaks up on you. I, di- I didn't really, you know, dislike him for quite a long time. There's a phrase where she, he's describing her at a farmer's market and it says, she bought freely, which you think, she's nice, you know. But, but then <laughs> when you get to know him, you see that he's, he's got his, always got his, his mind on the money, so to speak. Um, so it, yeah. it's really skillful the way that Claire Keegan seems to have this ability to kind of abide with this guy. And, you know, she could throw him off the bridge at any moment, but she sticks with him. And I think that's the real accomplishment is in the end, you, you dislike misogyny more and you feel more sorry for him, I think. I, I also worry a lot for the next girl. You know, given where he is at the end of the story, he might just try to turn her into his mother. Yeah. I suppose I feel there's more hope than that, that he will have learned something from this. It's in, in the fact that he corrects himself with the woman on the bus. Yeah. Yeah. He now has this in mind. That the the night of his wedding night when he's lashing out, even just only in his own mind, that's a particular night. Yes. I feel I I feel come away from the story feeling that he's learned something, not necessarily that he can change, but he's being made aware. Yeah. He may he may come around. I mean, there's that moment at the jewelers where he you know he makes an outright apology. The only time in the story he does that, and that that makes me think. He, he may have some untapped potential. Yeah. I mean, that moment is a turning point, too, because we see how central money is to his negative feelings about Sabine. I mean, you mentioned the moment in the farmer's market, but that's the moment where he's calculating, he's, ta- he's tabulating his love for her. You know, do I want to pay an extra 128 pounds to have this ring resized? Yeah. You know, what is it worth it? Oh, it's so heartbreaking. <laughs> and in the meantime, the jeweler's looking at him like, I don't think this is going to last. You know, you can't return this. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> and you feel that, you know, the thing that's heartbreaking is I just feel that he can't help it. It's not like he's thinking I should risk her love and say this. He just blurts it out because it's really the way he he's frugal. But I also I think he's confirming what she says later, that misogyny is about not being able to give because he can't give her the moment. He can't give her the money. He can't give. He always has to be protecting. And that's so, so sad. As soon as he says it, he, he immediately thought of it, the long shadow of his father's words. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's absorbed more of his father than he wanted to. Mm. Um, I think he wanted to, to read a part of that scene. Yeah. If you don't mind, I, I love the scene. Okay. So there uh, it says, uh, another month passed before she found an engagement ring to suit her at a fancy jeweler's off Grafton Street, an antique with two diamonds set on a red-gold band, but it was loose on her finger and had to be resized. When they went back to collect it some weeks later, on a Friday evening, an additional charge of 128 euros plus VAT was added for the resizing. He took her outside to the street then, saying that they should refuse to pay this extra charge, but she insisted she told him about the additional cost. Do you think I made him money? He said and immediately felt the long shadow of his father's words crossing over his life, 
on what should have been a good day, if not one of his happiest. She stared at him and was about to turn and walk, but Cajal backed down and clutched her arm and apologized. Please wait, he pleaded. I didn't mean it. I just didn't want to be taken advantage of, is all. I got it all wrong. He went back into the shop then and, with some difficulty, as his hands weren't steady, prized a MasterCard from his wallet. The jeweler, a red-haired man with gold-rimmed glasses, placed the ring into a little domed box and handed him the card reader. You know that this item is non-refundable now that it is custom-made. There'll be no need for anything like that, Cajal said. The jeweler pressed his lips together as though resisting the urge to say something more. But when the transaction was approved, he simply handed Cajal the receipt in the little box, which weighed no more than a box of matches. So in this particular scene, Cajal stops himself. He does realize he's got it wrong. He, he apologizes, he goes back in, he pays the money. But later he sort of can't reach that realization or moment of grace in time. Right. I, I was thinking about that, that moment after the move-in when he says, you know, well, it's just a little too much reality for me. You know, that's so... And, you know, here she's just given up her apartment and all her stuff is there. And, you know, she's been doing all the work, it sounds like, after he said that, and it's clearly hurt her. I, I found myself waiting for the apology to sort of parallel the earlier one into Jewelers, which made me... Uh, which complicated him and made me have hope for him and like him. And that doesn't happen. So it's a great example of the way that Keegan's using kind of like parallel incidents to show the progression of the story. Earlier, kind of in his more romantic state, he could summon up an apology kind of frantically. He didn't want to lose her. And now after all the stuff has moved in, that impulse apparently isn't there anymore. He's reaching the limits of his ability to be generous with her. Yeah, yeah. All he wanted was to have her there making dinners. Right, right, that's right, yeah. <laughs> he didn't realize she would have to put makeup in his bathroom and move his razor and so on. Yeah. Another case where, you know, the energy gets transferred because we're kind of, I'm kind of waiting for him to step up and apologize for that nasty thing he's just said. And instead what happens is Sabine takes the microphone and starts pushing him a little bit about her talk with Cynthia and her talk with Monica. And it's later in the story, we understand that somewhere in there he made that, quote, ugly remark about her, her eyes. Uh, so instead of an apology, he he gives her an insult. But it seems to me that he insults her after she's terminated the engagement. Mm, mm. Oh, so you think he she terminated the engagement that night? That's my understanding. Is that not your understanding? I didn't really actually think of it of when. It's it's perfect timing on her part. I I think she's just right. But I, I was I found myself um, noting the markers. So. Uh, there's that phallus-shaped cake that's still in the mm -hmm. fridge. So that shows that there was a bachelor party. And then there's a mention of the hen party. So that happened. Yeah, that's true. Perhaps it was later. I mean, that's the night that she calls him a misogynist. So I, I assume that was the night she finally decided she actually had made a mistake. Right. But I, I wonder, you know, why is she still there at that point? Why does she move in? Because there have been so many red flags. <laughs> what keeps her coming back? Yeah, that's a mystery. That's really beautiful, actually, because I don't... There are two moments I notice. One is, it, early on, he says he almost ran down to meet her. It's kind of the first time we meet her. Almost ran. Which, you know, for him, that's a big romantic gesture, to almost run. And then there's that really important moment, I think, where he makes that crazy, awkward proposal. She pushes yeah. back, and then he says, kids, a cat. Somewhere <laughs> in there is where he... 
as much as he ever convinces her. I think he does it in that moment, at least in terms of the story. But what, what do you think? Why do, why do you think she's still around? I am not sure. I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a question I have. Clearly, she's been talking to Cynthia about Irish men and trying to sort of figure out if this is just general. Um, <laughs> yeah. If what she's seeing in him is true of all the men around, you mm. know, she won't find a better option. Um, if it's just cultural, if it's something she kind of has to work with, right? right? Or if she could actually fall in love with someone else who's much better. So I think she's been feeling all these things. And she brings up the cherries and how he pointed out the cost of them. So she obviously felt that at the time. And of course, later, he thinks, you know, I, I lost her over six euros of cherries. Yeah. You know, just from the mechanics of how she sort of agrees to marry him, it, it seems like she, she's resistant throughout. You know, it takes a long time for her to make up her mind. At first, she doesn't really seem to like him that much. So I, I, I feel like it's maybe one of those sort of pragmatic decisions that we make thinking to ourselves, well, this is probably how it's done, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. This is what Irish men are like. Yeah. And, and then gradually it, that gets undone by all these little things that he does. You know, it's, it's a really interesting story in terms of Sabine being entirely three-dimensional, though she's not the main character. I, I really was happy for her you know, and admired her. And that's not an easy thing to do because presumably, I mean, they're having sex during this and they're going out and there must be enough pleasant moments to make this seem sustainable. But somewhere in there, she gets it. No, this is not going to work for me. And I I was really happy for her to have gotten out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what we're getting highlighted are these little, you know, blips along the way where she gets a sense there may be something wrong and we're not seeing in detail the good moments. Um, right. But at the same time, there were quite significant negative points. Yeah, and that frugality is just going to grow. There was one line, I don't have it written down, but he says something like, um, oh, that's the problem with women. A good half of the time, they want to do it their way. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, she, oh, that, no. that, was, that was the trouble with her, actually, not women. That was part of the trouble. Right, the with fact her, that she would her. not listen and wanted to do a good half of things her own way. Right. And you think, only half? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, and for him, you <laughs> She's know... giving the, you the other half. Right. And also for him, the sign that she has listened is that she'll do it his way. So I think give that 30 years of, you know, festering. <laughs> I think Sabine dodged a bullet, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But he also thinks uh, he has that, that wonderful thought that was the problem with women falling out of love. The veil of romance fell away from their eyes and they looked in and could read you. Mm. Um, So he knows he's been read. He knows he's been correctly assessed. Right. Um, He sees something ugly about himself in her eyes and he he recognizes that. Mm. He's not really denying that he is what he is. Yeah. This is what I think, I'll just call her Claire, but one of the things she does in all of her work so far that I've seen is she'll make incredible choices to make you see a character and sometimes to see them negatively. But then she, there's sort of an additional frequency that she adds to make it a very particular person. So here he, he's got all these bad tendencies. And I suppose, again, that lesser writer would just make him totally unaware of his own flaws. But he knows. It's almost like if there's different antechambers in our mind, one chamber knows, but the next one pretends it doesn't know. Maybe the room out of which one would take action that he doesn't quite let that room fill up in a certain way. 
but that really makes him interesting, and it, it complicates our, at least it complicates my reaction to him. Yeah, he's not just a jerk, because he is aware. Um, he just doesn't act on that awareness. Right. He shoves it back down. Yeah. I don't know if that makes him more or less of a jerk because if you know if you're just unaware, that's one thing. But if you're, if those little voices in your head are going, "You're wrong, you're wrong," you know, repent, repent, <laughs> and you're saying, "You guys shut up," and to shut those voices up, he says the c word. That's his kind of, uh, yeah. you know, he kind of plays that that nuclear option, and uh, and you know, for all that he points out the weight of the woman on the bus. We do hear that when, when Sabine was worried about her weight and needing Weight Watchers, he kept telling her it doesn't matter, and she looked good. Right, right. Um, so we know he, ha- he has such conflicting impulses. Although that line is um, the part that comes before this thing about her having her own mind half the time. Yeah, maybe. And yeah, so, so it, <laughs> but it's, both things are true. It's a very nice thing for him to say, and I think he means it. And then he takes it as an example of her kind of being too darn opinionated. Right. Yeah, that's it. We, we see these switchbacks. We see it even with the cat. Like he comes <laughs> home and he can't find the cat and his heart lurches. He's, you know, emotional and worked up. And then later the cat comes to find him and is purring and he picks her up and she's too heavy. So he throws <laughs> her out the door and locks it. It's, it's like, what are yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's so it's so interesting that that um, I guess somebody I heard once call it counterpainting, where you you have a, um, a strong sense of a character, and then a cross breeze comes, and you you find out something else. And I think the great ones, and I think Claire Keegan is a really great writer. They're able to kind of um, almost like not get too excited that they've nailed a the person, and you know they can mm-hmm. let they okay I did it I got a, I did a great example of how misogyny appears, and then somehow having the additional bandwidth to come back and say, on the other hand, you know, yeah. and, and that's yeah. really something. He's not just one thing. He's not just one thing. I right. asked her um, in the Q&A how she felt about Cajal, and she and she said, I can't say I like Cajal, but this man is lost and struggling, mm. and lost and struggling people make for good central characters. Mm. Mm. And she also said, it's unfair to judge people on their appearance as central characters in a short story. They may very well be at their worst. In other words, he might have been quite nice at other moments in his life. Right. But there's something, you know, Um, for me so powerful about the story's ability, us story's ability to do that, which is to say, and, you know, especially these days when so much of our public discourse tends to be broad strokes, you know, to be able to come into a a guy like this and spend some time and sort of feel all those different contradictory breezes blowing through him and then step back. And I think I have my sense of judgment softened a bit. I'm not in such a rush to judge him. As you know, if someone said, Oh, there's a story about a terrible misogynist who once made an ugly remark about his fiance's alignment of her eyes, you know, I'd be like, oh that asshole. But having existed in this story a while, you you I feel that I have um a greater ability to abide with people's complexity than I than I knew. And and that mm-hmm. I think that's a real gift of a story like this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, George. Oh, thank you, Deborah. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. You too. Claire Keegan is the author of four books of fiction, including Foster and Small Things Like These, which won the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2022. A new collection, So Late in the Day, Stories of Women and Men, will be published later this year. George Saunders has published a novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the Booker Prize in 2017, and five story collections, including 10th of December, 
a winner of the Story Prize and the Folio Prize, and Liberation Day, which came out last year. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1992. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.